Welcome to the New Books Network. One of the most compelling defences of the capitalist system is that for all its various dysfunctions, it does ensure the quick delivery of goods that people want. But in recent years, that feature of the system seems to have been challenged by COVID and perhaps by other things too. So what's going on? with supply chains and how can they keep working? What's stopping them working? Uh, Rob Hanfield is the co-author of Flow, How the Best Supply Chains Survive. So welcome to you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today. Now then, let's just uh, understand what did happen because it was basically during COVID, wasn't it, that, that goods that we expect to get were not on the shelves. Well, that's right, uh, Owen. Many things were not on the shelf. And we learned very quickly that many of the things that we normally get are produced overseas in places like China and Vietnam and Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. And all of a sudden, all those borders were shut down and uh, we weren't receiving any goods. And we didn't have that much inventory of it because we never had worried about it before. And all of a sudden, as you say, there were uh, empty shelves everywhere we looked. But was that the only thing going on? Because there is also the suggestion that um, the challenges to globalization more generally have affected supply chains. Yes, that's right. And and I think uh, as a result of COVID, everyone has recognized that uh, we need to start thinking about doing more of what we call nearshoring. Now, that doesn't mean that we should suddenly start producing everything domestically. But I think we should be producing some things that we need domestically. For instance, items, uh, products that are really critical to our everyday uh, living, semiconductors, pharmaceuticals, uh, electric vehicles. These are some of the things that we're seeing are really important to our future and to the way we live. And we should be thinking about building and producing more of those domestically. Yeah, but I can see a problem there because companies will just want to do it the cheapest way. I mean, governments may worry about this. They probably don't because it's a very long-term problem, I guess. So so who is going to do something about this? I think there's, there is some movement by governments to uh, require companies to, to do some domestic sourcing of this. Uh, governments are also creating a lot of incentives for companies to do this. For instance, in the U.S., there's a Semiconductor Act that's been passed. There's a lot of legislation, which I've been involved in, around nearshoring of generic drugs. Uh, there's a real problem with generic drug shortages. And uh, I also think that companies themselves are realizing, you know, if you save, you know, five pence on something you buy in China, but you don't have it, then you, you're really not really getting any benefit from that at all, are you? Let's just talk about the generic drugs. Now, then, they, they ran in short supply during COVID. Are they still in short supply? Yes, they are. Uh, of all the drugs that we, we use, uh, generic drugs are consistently the greatest, have the greatest number of shortages. And the reason for that is most of the drugs are produced in India and China. And uh, those factories, because they're being beat up so much on price, really have failed to invest in their infrastructure and they're having quality problems. And that's very concerning. And um, some of the research we're doing has shown that uh, one in 10 uh, generic pills that you buy has been produced in a factory that has warning letters from the FDA or other other healthcare uh, agencies. And that's very concerning when 
you know, the, the generic drugs you're buying are in short supply and they may not have been produced in a quality uh, approved environment. Yeah. I mean, are they consistent? <laughs> it isn't really supply chains, it's more health, but it just does prompt the question, obviously. Are all the generic drugs tested before they put on the market in the US and in Europe? Well, they are tested, but uh, again, the way they test them is they examine the factories where they're produced. They also are testing them to see if they have the right amount of active pharmaceutical ingredient in them. And again, a large percentage of them are finding that they don't have the correct dosage, which is also extremely concerning. Yeah. That's, so now then, that, well, you've given one example there where it's post-COVID generic drugs. Are there others? There are many others. Um, as you know, semiconductors were in extremely short supply. Uh, a lot of the automobile manufacturers couldn't get their cars out of production and onto the dealer lots. Uh, because they had shortages of, of semiconductors. And and to some extent, that's that was driven by the cyclicality of semiconductor production, but it was also because there are very few domestic manufacturers of semiconductors. So the U.S. government has created the Semiconductors Act, and as part of that act, they are encouraging domestic production of these semiconductor fabs. And sure enough, Intel and uh, TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, have both uh, announced plans to build semiconductor plants here in the U.S. Now, that won't entirely solve the problem, but it's a start, as they say. Yeah. I mean, we did actually do one on the uh, one of these um, podcasts on the future of semiconductors, and it, it reflected exactly what you've just said. But what it, just listening to those two examples, it seems to me that they're quite specific reasons to each sector or to each product that are causing problems. Uh, it's not like there's a simple, single factor at play. No, you're absolutely right. There's there's many different factors. Um, some of the other factors at play include the fact that, that supply chains have are so much more volatile than they have been in the past. They're subject to a lot of different climate change events, hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, storms, earthquakes. They're subject to a lot more uh, bottlenecks. So we've had, you know, port strikes up in Canada or COVID zero uh, incidents. They're subject to things such as labor shortages, you know, not enough people producing things that we need. And when you have all of these different unpredictable events going on at intermittent times, these supply chains we've found now are very fragile. They can be easily disrupted. And one of the key lessons too is you only need to have one shortage of one part to stop a supply chain. It doesn't have to be multiple parts. Just one part is enough to shut you down. Uh, well, we'll talk about that in, in a moment. But th th one of the points you're making is that um, the, the fragility is there now. But I'm just thinking that it probably was there 100 years ago, wasn't it? You know, ships coming across the Atlantic would, would sink, be extreme weather events. The, the, there'd be one-off incidents that would have disrupted supply chains then. Or, or is it now that it, it's the just-in-time idea that means everything is really fragile because you only had to be a day out and you've lost something? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Just you know, just in time, people are really slagging uh, just in time as a concept. I've worked with companies that have used just in time for a long time. Just in time isn't to blame. It, it Just in time, however, says that you have domestic, closely located suppliers who are supplying you uh, with material on a daily basis or sometimes several times a day, and they're co-located. They're nearby. But when you have these extended supply chains across the ocean, putting things on a container ship for six or eight weeks, 
that's not just in time. That's just extended, globally extended uh, supply chains. And that's the real problem is when you have these long lead times, these long supply chains, there are delays. Stuff is sitting on a ship for six weeks. You're speaking in different languages. You're, you're not having regular communication. And that's the problem with supply chains today is the long lead times and the extended supply chains are not easily managed. I imagine you're often asked about Amazon. Yes. Yeah. Amazon is a remarkable company, truly. Yeah. So talk us through it. I mean, it, I, mean I, I guess there may be other companies as efficient, but you know, Amazon's very visible, isn't it? Uh, well, so we can well all they see are, it. yeah. And, yeah. And, and especially during the pandemic, more and more people are buying things online because, you know, if they need batteries, well, I could either go to the hardware store, I can just click it on my phone and it'll arrive you know, later today or maybe tomorrow. And I can wait for that. Is Amazon really an outlier in this or are there other companies that you know we don't really see because i don't know they're making tractors or something and we we, we don't see uh, how efficient they are in terms of these supply chains is is, is amazon unique well I, I think you know one of the one of the most remarkable companies in the world is foxconn uh and and a lot of people have never heard of them but you know what they do is they're called a contract manufacturer and they're able they're really the engine that produces goods for apple and for, you know, uh, General Motors and for Toyota and for Coca-Cola. I mean, they're literally able to produce anything and they're able to do it extremely efficiently and they're able to distribute and sell it to anywhere in the world. And, and that's quite remarkable when you think about it, because they're they're in almost every single industry. And the reason people go to them is they're reliable. They get things done. That they're they're on time. They're efficient. They're they're low cost, and it's just the pure scale of, of what they're able to do, which is really remarkable. The the other company I, I really admire is is uh, I think I mentioned them earlier, Taiwan Semiconductor. Um, manufacturing semiconductors is so complex. There are six hundred individual steps. Each step requires technical expertise and, and quality performance. And if you think about it, uh, you need to have a specialist for each one of those 600 steps. If you botch any single of those 600 steps, the entire thing is ruined. They has to be tossed. It. And yet they're able to produce these chips uh, for everything that we use, computers, cars, iPhones, uh, televisions, uh, they're just so good at it, and and they're growing because they've developed that internal knowledge, and they're able to do it better than anyone else in the world. But that Taiwan example is that a supply chain sort of excellence, or just a you know, it's just a, an efficient company? And yeah, it's it's they, it's yeah. it is it is a supply chain because there's so many different inputs that go into a semiconductor, and there's and it's so complex, and so they're you know they're they're able to. Uh, to produce things uh, and ship them in ways mm -hmm. to meet uh, customer demand uh, very, very efficiently. And, and yeah, you're right. It, from a, you know, it's not so exciting from a distribution perspective, but uh, I think they're really remarkable anyhow in terms of that ability to, to produce those goods. Okay, so if we take those three companies, Foxconn, Amazon, and the Taiwan Semiconductor people, uh, what are what? I mean, you must have tried to study what what they've got in common in in the way that they do this, because there are lots of companies that do it badly, I presume. So, so what what are they doing differently that they're doing so well? 
I think, you know, what they do is they, they have a culture where they, uh, they, they encourage people to challenge the status quo. They, they, they ask people to, you know, have suggestions for improvement and they listen to those suggestions and they, they require them to, you know, try things, try new things. And I think that's really important because if you're not trying to consistently improve, if you're not trying to consistently trying to get better, uh, then, uh, then you're, you're, you're standing still and, and that's, that's not good. Another company I would throw in the mix there, uh, one that I've worked with for many, many years is Honda. And, and Honda has that, that same basis of how they view continuous improvement. But in addition, they pass it on to their suppliers. And, and Honda kind of views suppliers like family. Once you're a Honda supplier, you're a supplier for life. And they, they kind of view their suppliers like children. So, you know, you want them to do well in school. And so you encourage them and, uh, and, and, and you goad them a little bit if you have to. Um, but, but you're doing it for their own good. And, and they grow and they, they learn and they do better. And uh, Honda has that same way of looking at things. They're constantly challenging their suppliers to improve and do better. Let's just talk about the, the books you've written on this, because you've, you've basically tried to understand the nature of these supply chains. And you've co-authored a couple of books. And the first one was called The Living supply chain, which was basically using a sort of biological metaphor. So, so what were you saying in, in that? Yeah, what we were doing, and I co-wrote this book with Tom Linton, who was formerly the chief supply chain officer at Flex, which was another a contract manufacturer that actually competes with Foxconn. And, and what we talked about in that book was, was the availability of what we call real-time data. And we compared it to the physical world in which... Um, you know, at, uh, there, there's there's biological similarities where, you know, you, your body reacts to real time information. You know, you, they, it responds to heat or to cold or to sounds. And we're saying, well, why can't supply chains be like that? Why can't we be responding to real time signals and information and responding? Um, and that becomes really the theme of the book is how, you know, there's so much data out there in the in the world that managers could use. But it's about finding the right data and finding the right information to be able to respond to. And how does one you know, filter all that information and, and pay attention to really what's important and use that those signals to make decisions that can improve and respond and be more agile to, to shifts uh, in your environment around you? Yeah, well, I mean, I think we've all experienced dealing with companies when, you know, you just think, why have they not been able to share this information that I need them to share in order to make this uh, sort of supply chain work uh but they you know, quite consistently don't so it must be harder than it seems because you know as a consumer it seems like it should be pretty easy but it, i mean i presume it isn't easy so what what why is that so difficult in fact well you know again supply chains are very complicated things and there's um you know they're not static they're constantly changing there's there's constantly you know as we said earlier uh, disruptions going on there's uh, availability issues. There's climate change. You know that, for instance, the polar vortex that hit Texas shut down petrochemical refining, and consequently the cost of resins went through the roof. And it, there were shortages of resins, and still are, for that matter. Uh, and so, you know, there's you have these unexpected events that occur, and that causes problems. 
And that's why you get inflation. That's why you get shortages is, is, uh, you know, these, these global events affect everyone, uh, or they affect just a few people. So, and they're unpredictable. You don't really know when they're going to hit. Well, if, if that's the case, I mean, if you're advising, you, you said you work with Honda, for example, if you're advising Honda, would you say, look, you should slow this down a bit. I mean, it's, it's great to be quick, but it's, it's more important to be consistent and resilient. So why not slow it down? You know, have a bit more stock, have a bit more inventory and be more reliable and, and just accept the cost. Because otherwise, as you say, you won't have the products. You, it will go wrong. Well, I, I, I agree with you to a certain extent. But, you know, the thing with Honda is they also ha- uh, have very good information exchange. They have very good communication. Mm-hmm. So they're able to respond quickly. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're slow moving and, and you don't have good signals and you don't have good information, then, yes, you need a lot of inventory. But the best uh, operating companies in the world are those that understand how uh, material movement is so essential. That inventory in motion is better than inventory sitting. Uh, if you can have material constantly moving, then you can move it through quickly, and you can adapt quickly if you if you're if you have that velocity. And velocity is a key component of what makes really good supply chains is that uh, velocity of inventory movement. You talk well. Okay, you're bringing us on to your 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 new book because you, you you've moved on from a sort of biological metaphor to a physics one, and velocity is uh, one of your ideas. Uh, I'll go through some of the other ones as well. And uh, there's a very striking fact that you you point out in the book that electronics, these sort of very uh, you know popular electronic products, decline in value by eight percent a year because of technological advance. So there really is an interest in getting those things to market very quickly. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, if, if, you, if you keep them around too long, um, you know, they age very quickly and they're no longer uh, valuable. And, cons- you know, consumers don't want them. So you do have to move things quickly. You have to be agile. You have to be paying attention to the signals. And, um, again, if you can see things in real time as opposed to a delay. And, and you know, the, the example that we use is, you know, imagine driving your car down the road and you're looking at your speedometer and it's telling you how fast you were traveling 30 seconds ago. That's not very helpful, is it? You need to know that information right away so you can react. You need to know when your gas tank is empty. You need to know, uh, you know, how far you've traveled. So you need these signals to be able to uh, respond and make decisions and and drive your vehicle down the road. Well, supply chains are the same way, but we don't have those kinds of real-time signals. And for that reason, you know, we're not able to react quickly. If we don't react quickly, then there's delays and delays sometimes means you're acting and it's, but it's too late. Things have already, have already happened. You've missed the boat on this one. You give an example of the 2011 tsunami in Japan and, and General Motors. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, so that that was one of the biggest events uh, of the century. Uh, as we know, the tsunami hit Japan, and uh, you know it shut down the uh, the, the uh, uh, you know the generating plant, and uh, it shut down many many facilities. So a, a lot of companies, you know, one of them was General Motors, is the example we use in the book. They thought, oh, well, you know, uh, we have a few suppliers, but none of them were located in Japan, so we're okay. 
But what they didn't realize that every one of those suppliers uh, relied on a single chip factory in Japan for their products. So they had multiple suppliers that all relied on a single source in Japan that was shut down by the tsunami. And they quickly realized when they did the calculations that their entire global uh, production network would be shut down by this one incident in Japan because all of their vehicles relied in one way or another on this, what they call a tier two or tier three supplier. It's your supplier supplier. And, and that's what we realize today is most people don't realize uh, that the problems often occur deep into the supply chain where you don't see them, and if but they can still impact you. They can still hurt you. And, and it, therefore, it becomes more and more important to look at these extended supply chains and understand where these materials origin is. Yeah. So again, that's information, isn't it? I mean, it's quite detailed information, but I can see why people need it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and it, it's it's difficult because most most a lot of companies when they talk to their suppliers, they say, "Well, can you tell us where you get your stuff?" Oh, I'm not going to tell you that. Then you'll take advantage of me and you'll try to bring my price down, won't you? You know, saw like that. I'm not going to I'm not going to give you that information. Uh, but in today's environment, we need that information. We need to be more collaborative. We need to trust one another. We need to be able to say yes. I'll tell you where I get my stuff and I'll give you access to that supplier. And uh, we work with a company called Resilink and that's all they do is they map out these supply chains and then they keep track of different events going on in the world and they give you a heads up. Oh, watch out. There's a, there's a, uh, a tsunami, you know, that's approaching, uh, you know, the Asia there's, there's an earthquake in this area. There's a, there's a, there are strikes in France and uprisings in France. So if you have suppliers there, beware, they could be shut down. And I think that's, we live in a global world now with global supply chains. And we have to be able to pay attention to all these different things that are going on everywhere. Because that's interesting, isn't it? So there's a company selling the information to make supply chains work. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's selling real-time information on disruptions occurring everywhere in the world at once. Yeah. And you talk about thermodynamics, another sort of metaphor. And in, in that section, uh, you talk about lessons learned from Brexit and lessons learned from COVID. So let's deal with Brexit. What, what did Brexit teach us? Well, I, I think what, what we learned from Brexit is, uh, you know, people thought, well, you know, things will, will be more independent from Europe and we won't have as many issues. But they really didn't think about the secondary effects, you know, of, of having, uh, you know, labor. Uh, you know, many East Europeans would come to the UK and work there because they were Europeans. And they, they could be allowed to work. Um, when Brexit occurred, all those people had to go home, and all of a sudden there were shortages of labor for the certain kinds of jobs. Uh, so there's often these unintended consequences that can occur, uh, and you know it also it also impacted the financial markets, and and that's the danger with with any of these major shifts that people don't always understand that ultimately we're all connected, and and you can have these unintended consequences that occur. Yeah, well, the British government is now pursuing trade deals with, uh, you know, East Asia and so on, uh, and Australia, New Zealand. So you're you're suggesting that's going against the trend, really. The trend is towards localization, not globalization. Exactly. We're we're moving much more towards, um, I would call, you know, I would call it nearshoring. Um, and I, I think, you know, ultimately we will start to have some level of 
um, you know, regional, uh, regional production, regional supply chains. So I, I think, for instance, you know, in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, uh, there's a free trade agreement now that's promoting uh, open sales of, of of goods. You know, no tariffs, uh, easier transportation rights. I think in Europe and Eastern Europe, there's going to be uh, closer building there. I think, especially when um, when Sweden and, and Ukraine and some of these countries are brought into the EU, I think that will be a good thing. Um, and um, and then I think in in Asia, I think we'll get uh, China and and possibly some of these Southeast Asian uh, countries starting to collaborate more. So I think these regional supply chains are, are where we're going to end up. And um, and and that goes. That's another great model that Honda used to use. Is let's buy where we se- buy where we sell and sell where we buy. So producing closer to consumers and and producing things closer to the markets that we sell into, and and using local suppliers while we're at it. It's interesting you say that because there's another uh, future of we did on uh, I think it was the future of globalization and the 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 author was um, someone at Brookings. And she made the point that globalization's effects have been massively overstated and that, in fact, there's much more regional trade than global trade. Uh, so she was really saying it's already what you're describing is, has actually always been the case that the, you know, the amount of globalization is, is, is in popular perception, exaggerated. Yeah, that makes, that makes perfect sense. It really does. And uh, I, I think we're, we're seeing more and more of that today. You know, we're seeing more and more companies starting to build... Uh, factories closer to consumers. Um, they're encouraging domestic content in, in a lot of their goods. The EU has been uh, very particular about that and leading the trend. Um, but the other thing we're, we're, we're really pushing for these days is greater transparency. Uh, governments are requiring companies to be more transparent about their supply chains and saying, well, where are you getting this stuff? And you know, what are the conditions in the factories that are, are producing your apparel and your your electronics? And, and you have to be more open with that. Uh, and so that's a trend that's also uh, pushing companies to be a lot more transparent about where their supply chains are located. Presumably this affects some sectors more than others. Which are the ones that, you know, actually can still do offshoring and have you know, fewer difficulties? There must be, there must be a range there. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know apparel is is probably the best example of offshoring. Um, apparel is has moved almost exclusively to uh, offshoring of of goods, of uh, footwear, of apparel goods, and and you know that's benefited a lot of, of countries. Actually, it's, it's you know, Bangladesh now is one of the largest producer of apparel, and it's you know helped the poverty in that country immensely. Um, but, you know, people can take advantage of that, and, and that, that's a problem. Uh, you know, of course, we've also seen a lot of offshoring of, of manufacturing. Uh, there was a rush to go to China for the last 20 years because China was so efficient, so low cost. Um, they, could, they could manufacture things very well. And so, for instance, you know, 90% of the brake pads produced in vehicles are produced in by three manufacturers in a single province in China, right? So it, it's created these centers of excellence uh, in, in, in these countries where it's very difficult to bring that stuff back. It's going to be very difficult to bring it back to a, a domestic content type of scenario because... You just can't do it efficiently, uh, and and consumers aren't going to pay more for a 
domestically produced brake pad, right? Uh, they don't care. So, you know, there, it, it starts to it starts to create some interesting scenarios of, you know, what are the things we can bring back and what where does it make sense? And, and it's not as easy a solution as you might think. It does require some planning and strategic thinking. Yeah. Now, you've dealt with the Brexit lessons. I think the COVID ones you've probably dealt with, which is just the vulnerability and fragility of the supply chains, right? That's the lesson learned there. Well, that's right. And, and these supply chains are very complex uh, things, as I've said before. And there's no hard and fast rules that people could follow, you know, to say, well, why can't we just build it here? These are very complex issues. They're not as simple as people might think. And I think that's why uh, it's an exciting time to be in the field, because there's so much going on at the moment. Just one final section in your book we should talk about, which is you compare supply chains to electricity or sort of use the, use the metaphor of electricity. Why, can you just talk us through that one? Yes, of course. And, and uh, I'm impressed, Owen, you've actually read my book. Uh, we, we did talk <laughs> about sort of the, the, the flow of electricity and how, uh, uh, you know, electricity naturally flows to, to you know, the, the path of least resistance. And, and similarly, you know, we talked about the idea that supply chains will flow to the path of least total cost. And total cost represents not just the price of the product, but uh, also also flows to, uh, uh, you know, transportation, inventory, uh, quality. Uh, all of these things are now suddenly coming into more focus uh, in a post-COVID world. And I would say in a post-COVID world, everything is changing right now. Every, companies are re reimagining and, and redesigning everything. And, uh, you know, as we move to a, a, uh, a supply chain that uh, is flowing more quickly, and, and we, we compare this also to the flow of a river, how our river flows uh, to the uh, path of least resistance, electricity flows to the path of re- least resistance, we will see supply chains do the same thing. They will find their way, they will be redesigned, they will emerge in, over the next few years. These changes can occur overnight. They they may require many years for them to to uh, to uh, evolve, uh, but we're definitely going to see those changes occurring in the near term. The the other thing I think that's important, uh, which is really exciting, we talk about in the book, uh, is the idea that um, electronics and and you know the, these sensing devices uh, that are present in products today. Uh, you know, will will also change the way that supply chains operate. And there might be a day where, you know, you'd say to yourself, well, I want to send a package to uh, to London. You know, I, you go on your phone, you say, I want to send this to this address in London, and a, a, a truck drives by and picks it up. Now, could you imagine that, that there are these sensors out there that will pick up, just like an Uber will, that there's a package that needs to go somewhere. And there's a sensor in that package that will tell it where to go and it will find its way eventually uh, to its location using a, whatever transportation modes are out there that can pick up and communicate with one another. So this communication between inanimate objects, I think, is a really exciting development that we'll see more of in the future. That's already happening, is it? It is. It is. It's starting to happen. Yeah, we're seeing things being delivered by drones and uh, all kinds of interesting technologies. <laughs> So when you, I don't know what stage you are in your career, but I mean, if you can, if you're still doing this in 20 years, or if you're watching from a, from a, you know, on sitting on your porch and contemplating life and, and, and uh, watching what's happened to supply chains in 20 years, what, what are the biggest things will have, will have changed, do you think? 
gosh, well, in 20 years, I'll be, uh, I'll be 79. And I, I, I'm hopefully going to be like, not just sitting on my porch. I hope I'm doing more than that. But, but yes, uh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, we could even see uh, technologies that will evolve to the point where um, they're, they're self-guiding. And, and in our next book, we're, we're uh, drawing comparisons between, you know, how the, the natural world has the sixth sense. Um, how do birds know where to go when they migrate? Uh, how do geese, uh, you know, fly in a perfect V shape, uh, you know, inches from one another? How do they know how to do that? They have this sixth sense. They have this natural ability, whether it's the Earth's magnetic field that they're de- uh, that they're detecting, or uh, it could be, you know, uh, their heightened sense of smell, or uh, or their heightened sense of of feeling. And, and there's some remarkable books that talk about this biomimicry, the, the natural world and its ability to, uh, you know, naturally operate in a way that is so mysterious to us as humans. And I think if we can harness some of those natural capabilities and find ways to turn them into supply chain capabilities, that is going to be really exciting. And I think that is something that I, we, I would like to see in my lifetime, if, if possible. Well, look, thank you very much indeed for talking us through uh, you know, your, your area of expertise, supply chains, which matters to, to, to all of us. They really do. And it's, uh, again, I've been doing this for 33 years, but I think in the last three years, uh, it's suddenly become a much more exciting place to be. Perhaps there's a, a silver lining to this COVID thing after all. <laughs>